Hello, and once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for match 13 of our sports bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 1993's Cool Runnings, as well as 2000's Remember the Titans. It is weird to be back and discussing two Disney films. Yeah, admittedly, they're not perhaps the most quintessentially Disney films-y. Cool Runnings definitely feels like a Disney film live-action thing. That is definitely in that wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. Less so for Remember the Titans. Like, that's kind of a surprise to me, honestly. It feels almost more MGM-y. Yeah, Remember the Titans feels like a little bit of a deviation for Disney, even with their, like, live-action stuff. Yeah. But you still have some of that quintessential Disney schmaltz. Oh, sure. I think it's more the way it's shot doesn't always have that same kind of glamoury feel that Disney likes to have. That's very true. We can actually get into that because I have some information about the cinematographer. Oh, cool. I also have some information about the Cool Running cinematographer. Speaking of Cool Runnings, we should probably go ahead and start there. Yeah. So for round three, we want to talk about how the films got made. So we're going to talk about some of the people involved with that. Cool Runnings was in production for a while. It wasn't in development in hell exactly. It was just that the people involved kept shopping it around and swapping apart what they were going to do. It went through several directors. For a while, it was going to be Jeremiah Eschesik, but he wound up doing Benny and June instead. You might also know him from The Avengers. No, not that one. Um, <laughs> they tried for a guy named Brian Gibson, who was mostly known for serious, moody, period piece, biopic kind of stuff. Because for a while, this was going to be a like a fairly serious film with the tone not unlike Room of the Titans. And then John Turtletaup came up. He's known for something called Think Big that no one's heard of, something called Driving Me Crazy, also known as Tabby Goes to Hollywood, which is a sort of wacky East German car heist movie thing, and Three Ninjas. That Oh, yeah. wow. Just the first one or the entire series? Just the first one. Okay. Slightly better. Yeah. So we're not off to a great start. Those came before Cool Runnings, and I want to put the future trajectory in so you have a sense of where we're going. This is the guy who brought us National Treasure and National Treasure 2, and I think knowing that retroactively explains everything about why Cool Runnings is the way it is. Yeah. Now, I love National Treasure and National Treasure 2. I think they are delightful. They are goofy-doofy messes. But they are also, they have the Disney schmaltz that they, they believe 100% in what they're doing, which is, I think, what John Turtletown brings to the plate. This is the first proper film from Tommy Swerdlow and uh, Michael Golding, who went on to write Little Giants and Snow Dogs. There's a kind of running theme in their oeuvre. Mm-hmm. John Turtletaub also brought his cinematographer from Drive Me Crazy. That was Theodon Papamikio, who had been in the game for a while. He There's one more person I want to talk about. Usually producers are just people who put their money behind things. They don't, they're not super important to things. But I do want to talk about Don Steele here. She was a producer for Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, a lot of stuff you've probably heard of. And she also wrote a biography about being a woman working in Hollywood while also being pregnant called They Can Kill You But They Can't Eat You. I want to read it just based on that title. She wound up being very hands-on, like she was helping with the costumes, helping doing some of the directing. She said she didn't really enjoy the direct, but she was still willing to do a lot of the stuff because she wanted to make things get done. Hmm. Which is pretty cool. She wound up having a history of hiring a lot of women for her films and making sure there were a lot of women involved in production. And that was part of her ethos was she knows that the Hollywood is a hard place to be a woman, so she's going to make it as easy for other women as possible. Which, pretty cool. Hmm. I can get on board with that. Going through a lot of directors kind of explains why Cool Runnings 
has this kind of abstract feel to me why it's so far from the reality of what happened. But apparently there were still some elements of the original. They wanted to preserve some of the moments, some of the video footage of the actual Olympics, which I'm guessing is some of the better shots because mm-hmm. Olympics, yeah. And apparently one of the bobsledders was on set for some of those scenes. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I do like they filmed on location in Jamaica. So a lot of Jamaican people got to be involved in the production. Last time we talked about how we feel a little bit icky about the way that this creates fictional versions of real events, which I think mm-hmm. is totally fair. I feel mm-hmm. a little better about it, knowing that some of the original people gave their blessing and that this wasn't completely divorced from reality, but it mm-hmm. is still kind of a mm, thing. Yeah. In line with that sort of topic, I, I have some similar things to bring up for Remember Titans, but mm-hmm. we'll get there eventually. Sure. So, Cool Runnings, where do we want to start with the film? I think we're at the point where we can do kind of comparison contrasty things. So... How do we feel about the team as a cohesive unit? I think it's very interesting the way the two films differ in the, how they build up the team. For Remember the Titans, that is completely the focus of the first act, is building up this team to be a cohesive unit, a family. And it's very apparent the shift from Act 1 to Act 2 is getting back from training camp and realizing hey, we are cohesive, but our community definitely is not. Hey, man. Hey, Julius. Man, crazy out here, man. Yeah, well, what did you expect? I don't know. I ain't quite expected to be like this. Act 2 kind of transitions to we need to bring our community together and we're the best ones to do it. Mm, Yeah. Whereas in Cool Runnings, the building of the team takes place throughout the entire film. There's the initial animosity between a number of the players because Junior prevented Yule and Doris from getting to the Olympics for sprinting. There's also the very difficult training that they're going through without much funds or much equipment. Mm-hmm. Until Junior kind of puts his money where his mouth is. Well, it's they don't even really get a whole lot of like equipment for that. That's mostly just to get to Calgary. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from just Irv Blitzer working his connections and burning what few favors he has left. Yeah. And then we get these scenes with Yule talking about wanting to get off the island, what his goals are. And after I, Yule Brenner, win the Olympics and become famous, I'm going to leave the island. We get the scene between Yule and Junior in the bar bathroom and like, you need to stand up for yourself. The whole, I see pride, Junior, I see power, I see a badass mother who won't take no crap off of nobody. That's right. right. Even with Sanka and Doris, at the beginning of the film, we see how close they are. And then Doris gets too into his whole head and too focused on winning. And he and Sanka have this rift that Sanka needs to like pull him back. This isn't just about winning. This is about us as Jamaicans, as a team. Well, the right foot for us is not the Swiss foot. I mean, come on, Darius, we can't be copying nobody else's style. We have our own style. So, honestly, you could think of the team coming together as the major plot of Cool Runnings, where the team coming together in Remember the Titans is more an impetus for the larger healing of this entire community. Mm -hmm. And I think in Cool Runnings, because you have all these friendships developing between these different people, it winds up being very harming. I think kind of got your finger on it as it were because that is the central focus it winds up being just watching people become friends which is just kind of a, a very nice thing to experience it's mm-hmm. just a very calming experience for people mm-hmm. although i think part of the trouble with the team is that while we see them becoming a team off the court field 
track after track. We don't necessarily see it on the track because of the nature of bobsledding. You... Part of it is the nature of bobsledding. Part of it is also that they obviously did not have the budget to do interesting things with that filming and get talking between each other while they're in the sled and whatnot. We probably could have done a better job with it during the training montages, mm. but most of those are mostly silent and just have a song playing over them as opposed to getting actual scenes of these people interacting. Most of their interactions aren't between each other, but themselves and Irv. Right. You don't really... It's not filmed with the precise eye of an action movie that lets you see like who is making mistakes or doing things well that give them better balance. So you don't have mm -hmm. that sense of you always learning how to use his arms better or, oops, there we go. Sokka's got his footwork down or whatever. Mm -hmm. That said, I think that because there's only four of them, five if you include Irv, you still get a very cohesive sense of them as a team. Like I mm -hmm. understand how they all interact with each other. Whereas in Room of the Titans, I get some of the bonds, but... There just is not time for every single character to have every other character's interactions mapped out. Yeah. In Remember the Titans, you're juggling a cast of about a dozen characters. Yeah. And that's just the like characters who have arcs. There's easily 20 yeah. others. It's not so much that Cool Runnings is doing it better exactly. It's just, it just has less to do so it can do it more. Mm -hmm. There is one other thing that I want to bring up. And I've wanted to bring it up for the past couple episodes, but there hasn't really been a good time. But... I find the kissing booth scene just really unfortunate. Oh, yeah. On multiple levels. For one, you have Doris who is manning the booth, and then his girlfriend, significant other, shows up and pretty much drags him away by the ear. Yeah. It's very stereotypical, and it also plays into some unfortunate stereotypes about the nature of black relationships. I can see that, yeah. So it's not great. And then... After all that happens, Sanka, who has been very upset that no one has wanted to kiss him at the kissing booth, finally gets to stand and take his place. And then the next customer, I guess? Yeah, customer. The next John, I guess, as it were. <laughs> uh, is a old lady who uh, obviously does not have very many teeth left. Mm -hmm. And it makes me uncomfortable in a variety of ways that aren't very easy to articulate. I get you. It's interacting with sex work, sex work is comedy. Consent. Consent as kind of a thing. Because it's very obvious that Sanka does not want to be in the position he is as soon as he looks at the next customer. Right. It also gets into some, like, body shaming stuff. Yeah. It's a short scene, goes by pretty fast, but since this is ostensibly based on real-ish life, it adds a layer of, what are we saying about these people? I also don't know if that was a thing that happened in real life. I I would expect not. Right, but... It's just a short scene, but just the multifaceted way that it is squicky is really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it is played for laughs, so there's that level of making it softer to experience, but also arguably a little more uncomfortable. Yeah. This is all during like the fundraising montage, so this is... Combined with scenes of Sanka brusking downtown, trying to get funds, and no one donating until someone gives the money to shut up. I'll pay you a dollar to shut up! Or you'll having uh, arm wrestling competitions and like beating pretty much everyone until this larger woman finally shows up and is able to best him. Mm hmm I kind of do like that. Yeah, like all, all of those scenes I think are really good, really funny, and they work for this. But 
having those right next to this kissing booth scene glosses over all of the not great stuff. Mm-hmm. Although it winds up working on a thematic level because the film is all about subverting expectations mm-hmm. and all those comedy bits come from the subversion of how this should go yeah. so yeah it's weird that both these movies have uncomfortable kissing scenes in them yeah it is yeah i still think um remember the titans is worse oh definitely yeah cool running is, is a stock comedy trope thing that is perhaps uncomfortable but not objectively objectionable yeah We've talked before about the way that other teams talk to these characters just as Jamaica instead of by names or anything. Criticism to them as kind of the embodiment or the personification of Jamaica as a whole. Mm. And I think that plays into some of what was happening behind the scenes, both the actual events of these Jamaican people who were achieving something that seemed fairly impossible at the mm-hmm. time, but also in the filming and how it made people feel like Jamaicans were getting to be represented as not just a sort of a monolith, but having a diversity of personality and of life experiences. Mm. So, yeah, I think that winds up working. And it also gives us a good way to let the characters from the opposing teams interact with the main team without having to have a scene where they, like, meet and shake hands or whatever. I would push back against that a little bit, considering how caricatured each of our four main athletes are. That's fair. Like, we have Sangha, who is kind of the caricature of what everyone thinks of when you picture a jamaican that you kind of picture sanka sure or bob marley mm. fun loving musical doofy yeah head in the cloud, a pisces <laughs> yeah and then we have a bunch of other kind of stereotypes we have yule who is this big dumb muscle head mm. and who has grown up underprivileged and wants to get out of the ghetto right we have Junior, who is effectively just Carlton from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Basically. A little bit more pushing it back against his father. And it's like, no, I'm going to be my own man sort of thing. And then we have Doris, tall, lanky, has the flat top and everything. And is kind of just the, I don't know, the 90s platonic ideal of a black man. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate. But like, you can see it in some other media at the time if you look at say like this is going to be a weird reference but the character from the bk kids club there was a like athletic black kid with the flat top vince from from the cartoon recess even if you look at misfits which is decades later but you look at curtis who is a sprinter (laughs) and you look at Doris, they are very very similar looking Quick sidebar, there is at least some alternate universe where Misfits is just what if the characters from Cool Running had superpowers, and I want that universe. <laughs> yeah, and I get what you're saying about the stereotypes, and this is mostly like me reporting what like what Jamaicans at the time were saying. Yeah. So while I agree that the stereotypes are there, I know that it made some people feel good. I don't know. It's, it's like, a weird thing that I can't really yeah, judge. B- both things can be true. Yeah. Yeah, that. It's so like, I'm not faulting them like, oh, they shouldn't like this because it's bad representation. That's not my place to decide. It's mm. just from an outside viewer looking in like, huh, this, this seems really lazy on the part of the writers and the filmmakers. You're right. And it is partially a comedy from... And like a first time comedy for some of these people. So I kind of get why they would default to stereotypes. But defaulting to stereotypes is fine if you're writing within your lane. But when you're writing outside of it, less so. Mm -hmm. The characters do at least get to be very fleshed out and real as people though. Like they, Mm -hmm. while they are coming from stereotypical places, I understand who they all are on a pretty solid level by the end of the film. (laughs) Except maybe Sanka. 
Yeah, Sanka probably has the weakest arc out of all of them, and those really strong character arcs are kind of what has made me not really touch on the stereotypes until now. Mm. But, you know, after three watch-throughs in pretty quick succession, some of these things are going to become more glaring. Oh, for sure. Well, this isn't necessarily true for Cool Runnings, but but storytelling as a whole, starting from a stereotype of a character and then developing that character in your world is a fairly solid way to write an ensemble cast. Like, that's what George R. R. Martin did for Game of Thrones, and it worked pretty well. Yeah. To be fair, part of his process was taking these fantasy character stereotypes and deconstructing them or subverting them. Right. And putting them in exactly the wrong genre. Yeah. So a little bit more technically proficient at construction. Yeah. But I mean, it, this is a Disney film from 1993, so... Right. <laughs> I'm not trying to argue that Yul Brynner is a Zora High. Yeah, th- this film is a slightly elevated ca- cash grab. Yeah. Speaking of slightly elevated, how did Remember the Titans get made? To talk about like how this all came to be, we have to start with Gregory Allen Howard, who is the screenwriter. He is also known for writing Ali another sports movie depicting a prominent black athlete. Interestingly, though, while he wrote Ollie first, the production delays meant that Remember the Titans came out before it, because Ollie released in 2001. But Question, is Gregory Allen Howard a black person? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, Gregory Allen Howard is a person of color. During his research for Ollie, he came across this the story of TC High School and their undefeated run and Coach Boone and everything like that and dug into the research. However, there have definitely been some critics, especially from the Alexandria, Virginia area, who don't feel that the film is a very good representation of the truth, and that Alexandria, Virginia of 1971 is standing in for Birmingham, Alabama from the Mm mid-1960s. We talked about this a bit last time, about how the film really wanted to tell its story to the exclusion of what was actually going down. Yeah. And on one hand, it's fine. It's a film. I'm fine with it bending the truth. Unfortunately, the popularity of the film has led to the film being used as historical revisionism, and it's allowed Coach Boone to kind of reinvent himself Mm. since then. He was not very well liked prior to the film. He was ousted, I think, after a year or two after the events depicted in the film. Many of his players felt that he was incredibly harsh. He's often described as the only way that Coach Boone was egalitarian is that he was horrible to everyone. Now, I may be a mean cuss, but I'm the same mean cuss with everybody out there on that football field. Coach Boone originally said that he would not have taken the position as head coach if it was offered to him just because he was a black man, but uh, more recently has come to say that he was obvious that he was a affirmative action hire. Mm. So it's very much not great that the film is now being used to construct this alternative history of events and kind of prop up the character of... Coach Boone? Yeah. And as a bit of like trivia to bolster your point about historical revisionism, we watched this film in a history class in high school. Middle school? In my schooling. It's a little unfortunate that the artistic liberties that Howard took have kind of been written into history books. I don't necessarily fault him for that. Would it have been better for it to take the Cool Runnings approach and have fictional characters that are comparable to but not identical to real ones? 
I think if you were going to fictionalize the characters, you would also want to fictionalize the setting. Honestly, just say it's like loosely inspired by this event and these events and this event and set it in the 1960s during integration in the South. Yeah. And I think the film very much could have worked on that level. I mean, at that point, we'd be 30 to 40 years out. So the mythologizing of the events of the time period would be fairly reasonable and Mm -hmm. forgivable, I think. I mean... Depending on how it was done, there's definitely going to be yeah. some variance there. Mm-hmm. Moving on to director, we have Boaz Yakin. He is honestly mostly works as a writer and now more frequently a producer for things. And there's not really any rhyme or reason to his uh, directorial filmography. He's directed like Fresh, A Price Above Rubies, Uptown Girls, Death and Love, Safe, Max, and Boarding School. So... Genre and tone are completely all over the place. He kind of seems like a, just a competent director, but doesn't have a really discernible style. Mm, sure. I mean, I can't say for sure. I've never heard of any of those films. So. Yeah. Of the list, I have seen Uptown Girls and Remember the Titans, but that's about it. Right. I haven't seen either of those. <laughs> You've been lying to me for weeks? <laughs> You're surprised by this? <laughs> I would talk about Producer, but this is a Disney film, and... It's produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Oh, okay, yeah. So you can't swing a spec script around without hitting a Jerry Bruckheimer production. (laughs) (laughs) So if I were to talk about him, we'd be here for ages. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many better renderings of the history of the Disney Corporation than we're going to be able to give. Exactly. But I do want to talk about the cinematographer. The cinematographer is Philippe Rousselot. He began working in the 70s in like French film and... He is still currently working. I think he has a credit from like 2018. It's the most recent thing. Some prominent works include Interview with a Vampire, the Sherlock Holmes series with Robert Downey Jr., the Fantastic Beasts series, as well as a number of Tim Burton collaborations, including Planet of the Apes, Big Fish, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Dang. And if you look at all of those together, oh, yes, he has a very distinctive style and Looking at all those, I'm like, I understand why this film looks the way it does and why it doesn't look like a lot of other Disney movies. Right. Honestly, think he was a very interesting choice. One of the big things about his films is like very dramatic and dynamic lighting, and it is used to great effect here. And it also makes sense why a lot of the games at night, we're still able to tell exactly what's going on. We're still able to recognize the characters underneath all of their helmets. And I'm pretty sure it's because of Philippe. Mm-hmm. So when we first talked about this, I talked some shit about Philippe and how he didn't know how to light black actors. Mm-hmm. Having now rewatched it, I think it might be that your TV, the light balances are a little bit flat. Because like watching it on on my monitor, it was less bad. So mm. I retract my complaints uh, for the Bruce a lot. But yeah, I've seen a decent number of his films, like the Yardy Day Sherlock, the Fantastic Beasts, the Interview with the Vampire. A thing I noticed about him is he's really good at taking things, even fantastical things, and making them look real. A lot of his work has this sort of pretty version of real that isn't noticeably so. Like the Yardy Day Sherlock's look really good, but they aren't in your face with how good they look. The goodness of the sets, of the stylization, etc fades into the background, and so it doesn't feel hyper-real. It just feels real, but also very clean and crisp. Although he does kind of skew into some of the hyper-realness, especially if in something like Big Fish or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, but I think I'll blame but, it on, on Tim Burton more than anything else. <laughs> that's very true. At least for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I haven't actually seen Big Fish. I would recommend it. It's very good. It's okay. got Ewan McGregor in it. 
I get that confused with you mean everyone we know. Mm. Another interesting thing I learned in my research is that the actors in the film who were portraying the players on the team, they actually had to go through a few weeks of football camp. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was reading an interview with Donald Faison about it. And going through the football camp, at least for him, he decided that he was going to do as many of his own stunts as possible. Oh, nice. So that's pretty cool. While I have nothing but respect for stunt performers and for the editing and other coordination that it takes to make stunt performers look seamless with their real actors, I'm also really impressed when actors do their own stunts. So it's just a cool Mm -hmm. thing. There's a part of me that always yearns for that triple threat era of Hollywood when everyone could sing and dance and, and act and probably sword fight as well. <laughs> I mean, honestly, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between dancing and sword fighting back then. Well, yeah. Flinning, as it is still called <laughs> these days. When you attack the other person's sword. We're not here to talk about sword fighting. We're here to talk about football. Oh, so where do you want to begin with Remember Titans? So, despite being a huge mythology nut, we haven't really talked about Titans and their place in culture, mythology, and this film. Okay. (laughs) I don't have a lot of thoughts, but there is that bit where we get the speech about how... Greek mythology, the Titans were greater even than the gods. They ruled their universe with absolute power. I don't want to be like, well, actually, in history, but... Are are we getting an episode of the Pedans Corner? (sighs) I mean... We can. I wasn't going to, but it has been a while since we went to the Penance Corner, so... Penance Corner. So pedantic. I think the difference between Titans and the gods, fuzzy terminology, whatever, the the Olympians that we kind of think of, like the the Zeus, the Hera, etc., was that the Titans were very much about natural forces, whereas the gods tended to be more about civilian issues. So Mm -hmm. love, marriage, leadership, planting and harvesting in a deliberate sense, that kind of thing. Whereas the Titans were more about natural forces, so the oceans, the skies, that kind of thing. The Titans did not have a particularly great reign. I hate to say it, but... It was a nasty place. There was a mess wherever you stepped. <laughs> um, and so the Titans maybe not like the best people to emulate, but I also understand why that would be a choice you would make for that speech. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But also the use of Titans and mythological imagery fits into a thing that you are sort of supposed to do in ritual setup where you make the participants in your ritual feel like they are participating in something that is venerable and older than time older than history whatever Mm -hmm. that it has a place in chronology Mm -hmm. so their activities as titans metaphorically is connected to the sort of ancient tradition of powerful beings who rule through strength and might Mm -hmm. so that fits pretty well it is a good way of both making boone feel like a more competent leader in the film but also in making the audience feel like they're witnessing something epic and important as opposed to just a high school football session season that went pretty well you know (laughs) It also ties into why the community gets as involved with the Titans as they do as they are going on their undefeated winning spree. We understand why the Titans do their song and dance number before their games. How it is able to bring everyone together is kind of through that sensation of like ritual. Yeah, exactly. And one of the possible purposes for religious ritual is causing internal change in the participants and Mm -hmm. that is you know what happened over the course of the film so hey it worked out Mm -hmm. i didn't mean for this to be this depth but here we are now oh it works out that's kind of what i like about this show not being scripted is we can go off on deep dives like this yeah on a much lighter but no less weird note (laughs) 
I know it's completely ahistorical. I really do love the scene with the banana. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious. For those who haven't seen the film, there's a bit where an opposing coach calls Coach Boone a, a monkey. It's not great. That coach is also completely fictional. Yeah. yeah. Probably for the best. Yeah. And then after they defeat that... When they're doing the whole, like, players walk by and, like, shake hands, high-five, whatever. To good, the good, good sportsmanship walk. Boone cups up on the opposing coats and just hands him a banana. Kind of turning the tables on him and making a monkey out of him. Yeah. That scene feels very cathartic. And while the handing the banana is probably not something that happened terribly often, unfortunately, racist idioms of comparing black people with other primates is very not ahistorical. No, not at all. And you were talking about the film being viewed in history class. On some level, I think that that's fine. If you were looking at this film as like a documentary of that specific uh, football season in 1971 in Alexandria, Virginia, then no, I think it fails in a historical perspective. But if you were trying to understand the tensions of integration and the racism that was very prominent at the time period, and more likely a little bit closer to during integration in the mid-60s, I think it does a pretty good job of instilling a sense of what it was like. Yeah. Well, probably. I think we talked before about how the film doesn't really dig too deep into things. But again, like it, that makes it more palatable for, I guess, a middle school audience. So yeah. that probably works out. But scenes like Blue and Petey being denied service at the restaurant after they win the big game and Sunshine not understanding why that's the case. You have... Jerry's girlfriend and Ray very, very set in their ways, and you have one who refuses to adapt and one who very slowly comes around. Yeah. Um, I, like, I think all of these are pretty good examples of what the time period was like, but no, they don't give a full and complete picture. Right. It's probably not a bad film to show to, show to your kids, but yeah. yeah. It's, it's in that kind of suitable for educating your students at the end of the semester space that like October Sky fits into. Yeah. If you are going to show this film to children, you also need to have a discussion about it with those children. <laughs> but also, I think because it's a fairly long film, you can break it up pretty easily and watch half an hour talk about the issues. Watch half an hour talk about the issues. That's a pretty good format for studying film and for studying history through film. Mm. And I guess it's also worth noting that studying history and the history of racism can still be very sensitive for people today. Like That has not gone away at all. And yeah. so a film that doesn't show the worst parts of it can be a good place for that if you don't want to risk being super triggering for your students. So I guess, you know, fair enough. Yeah. Mm. We've talked about a lot of stuff. I think it might be time for us to hit extra innings. For sure. So as you probably know by now, extra innings are where we compare the best montage and the best training gimmick. Also, because both of these are team-based films, we get to talk about who the MVP for each team is. Oh yeah, there are. So why don't we go ahead and start off with best gimmick? I think for Cool Running who decided the gimmick was being locked in an ice cream van. Yes. And I think the gimmick we decided on for Remember the Titans was racism. <laughs> I mean, specifically remembering the Battle of Gettysburg, but yes, yes, racism as a whole. Yes. I think the ice cream van is much more fun. It is. Also, I mean, that will always be educational, <laughs> question mark, whereas hopefully one day racism will not be a useful motivator. Yeah. Ho hopefully one day Gettysburg will be as like, still culturally relevant to the Battle of Marathon. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm going to go ahead and give that one over to Cool Runnings. Sure. <laughs> this is kind of a, a weird one. Yeah. So the last time we were not a huge fan of like a person being locked in an ice cream truck, but comedy. Yeah. I think montage, it hands down goes to Titans. After we have that conversation between Julius and Jerry at training camp and then a montage of the team finally coming together. Mm-hmm. And also the really fun montage of them winning a lot of things where we get that bit where Titans eat free. Titans stuff their face. Titans do not hit free. <laughs> Very good. Cool Runnings has some pretty good montages, though. Like, they have a decent number of training montages. A lot of them have some really good comedy in there. I th- it's not the montages are bad. They're just not as strong. Yes. And there's a little less of a sense of progress as characters. Yes. So MVP. Last time we gave MVP to Jerry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he got it one time, so he doesn't get to have it again. Fair enough. So I'm going to default back to Louis Elastic for MVP. <laughs> I think Louis is definitely one of the members of the team who makes the most progress throughout the film. Mm-hmm. He's also just a really great character. So yeah, I'm totally down for giving it to Louis this time. Sure. I might also consider Rev just for bringing the team together a few, a few times. But I don't know. Rev feels like he kind of falls mm-hmm. out of the movie after he gets injured. Just That's like true. Doesn't have a whole lot to do, which is unfortunate. Whereas Louis does get to have like a, a conclusive arc at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Then Cool Runnings has never been up against a team film before, so we haven't been able to do MVP. No, we really just have Sankadris, Yule, and Junior for MVP, so I'm not sure if we want to give it to Junior. He has great character development, I'm not sure if he's the MVP of the team. See, I my instinct is to give it to Sanka, because Sanka's yes. speech at the end is kind of what gets Doris out of his funk and really brings the team together and that leads to their ability to perform great on their second run and then going into their third they have this tragedy but they exit with indignity yeah so i'm gonna give mpv to sanka yeah i'm okay with that i think it's time now for our final vote yeah i really don't know on the one hand i think urban science is maybe a better film i am more excited about rewatching cool runnings Last time, Cool Runnings kind of just squeaked by for me. Mm, sure. For whatever reason, just wasn't feeling Eddie the Eagle. Mm-hmm. Whereas this time around, Remember the Titans is a incredibly solid film. And both of them do have those problems with rewriting history to a certain extent. And you can even argue that it's a little bit worse in Remember the Titans. But as a film and the way it is structured, I think it's just so much stronger that it's going to get my vote this week. That's fair. I'm very on the fence with them, so I'm good with Rule of the Titans moving on. Okay. All right. Well, remember the Titans is going to move into the final. Ooh! Which means going up against either Stickus or the Karate Kid. And you can listen to that episode coming up next week. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, subscribe on whatever your podcatcher is. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.